The 1989 Portuguese Grand Prix will forever be famous for Nigel Mansell being black flagged, failing to see that flag, then colliding with championship contender Ayrton Senna. To imagine the sort of uproar there would be if something like that happened today is a terrifying thought. But even in the days before social media and online coverage, this was a massive controversy, with Mansell being banned from the following race at Jerez. We'll get into all of that and everything else that was going on during a fascinating period of F1 as Bring Back V10s takes its latest trip back to the first year of our V10 era. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, for this one are Sam Smith and Andrew Vandenberg, two men who are very fond of this time in F1, as am I. So Andy, welcome along to your first appearance of Series 5. When you think back to Portugal 89, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, at the moment, the first thing that's coming to mind is that normally Sam and I are recording the uh, Formula E podcast. So coming here and talking about things that happened almost 30 years ago is a bit weird. We should be talking about electric motors and the, the whir of a motor rather than the thundering sound of a V10 and a V12. No, but the thing that always comes to mind when I think about this race is the most perfectly executed bit of reverse parking in Formula One history. <laughs> and I, Even as soon as you sent me the email about this, I could see Mansell in the pit lane. I could see him engage in reverse and that car going backwards because at this time in F1, you know, we'd hear that reverse was basically there to fulfill the regulations. And if someone went straight on at La Source or whatever, they could be there three minutes trying to hook up reverse and get back out. There's Mansell, oh, just whack it in, yeah, back up there. It's, it's perfectly done as well, the way he just sort of uh, puts a bit of a slide back in. So in a very long way around, that's what I always think of when I think of this Grand Prix. Excellent plug for our Formula E podcast as well. The new Formula E season is up and running, so look for that in your podcast feeds. Uh, Sam, what sticks out for you about Portugal 89 when the cars are a bit louder than they were in they are in Formula E? Well, I, I shan't channel my inner Ed Straw and choose Roberto Moreno totaling his new Coloni C3 in practice. Uh, although I was I was tempted just to annoy you, Glenn. But really, you know, in a similar vein, it's got to be that that incident really between Mansell himself, his pit box, and and ultimately Senna. I think. The vision of Roland Brunschreider and his assistant um, sort of very um, lackadaisically putting out a, a black flag and, and, and Mansell not seeing it for three laps has, has got to be the, the standout memory for me. Yeah, and we will spend a lot of time going into that because, as you can imagine, there's so much to that story. Before we get going, as ever, we'll do some shout-outs to those of you leaving us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who supports the show in this way, including some of our most recent reviews viewers Joe G1993, McQuirty7, Cal Rowe and Freddie Mercury's cat who got in touch on Twitter because uh, Freddie or Freddie's cat doesn't uh, listen on Apple Podcasts. Talking of Twitter though, make sure you use the hashtag BringBackV10s to get your questions in about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005 for our series finale episodes or you can email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And remember, if you want to get early access to ad-free versions of the show plus bonus content between series, check out the Race Members Club. To find out more about all the other benefits you can get and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. But back all the way to 1989. And as ever, you didn't have to look very far to find an Ayrton Senna Alain Prost controversy heading into this weekend. Although this one was more of an issue between Prost, McLaren and Honda. 
Honda demanded an apology from Prost after he hinted that he didn't think he was getting fair treatment on the engine side at the previous race at Monza. We'll save a deeper look at that for a Monza 89 episode in the future, but we will deal with the fallout. Former McLaren team manager Joe Ramirez has said that Honda refused to keep supplying Prost with engines for the rest of the season if they didn't get an apology and Prost had to put together a letter with team boss Ron Dennis to fix it. Once it was resolved, McLaren and Honda released a statement saying they had reassured Prost to his satisfaction that he was getting equal treatment with Senna, uh, even though by now it was known that Prost was going to Ferrari for 1990. The statement added, Alain deeply regrets the adverse publicity and the resulting embarrassment that has been caused by his actions. Honda and McLaren have accepted that these resulted from Alain's perception of his treatment by the team and were not made with malicious intent. He has agreed that in future any doubts he might have about the parity or performance of his car will be discussed with the relevant engineers prior to the comments being made in the press. Senna largely stayed out of this one, although on arrival at Estoril he said, Talk is talk, but what matters are the results. I have a clear conscience that we are getting equal treatment. Andy, Prost said years later that he deliberately hadn't named Honda when he went public with these concerns, as if that somehow made it okay. But were Honda right to feel as aggrieved as they did about this accusation, effectively? On a variety of uh, podcasts we've put out on the race, Gary Anderson has often been asked about dealing with Honda. And it's he always gives a very clear answer about the culture within there and the respect they needed to be treated with and the different ways of going about getting what you needed. And I think whether he overtly named them or not, calling out Honda like that was never going to be the right thing to do. Um, we know that the way Honda developed then was to have just like throw money at things. So they'd have multiple um, lines of development all going on at the same time. And that's why they would find the best route. And it might well be that on occasions something was given to Senna prior to Prost or whatever. But I don't think that they would have done something like that in a way to undermine the relationship of the team. And certainly the way to get his way was not to call them out. So I think... You know, we've seen, we'd seen in the past and the way things had ended up at Renault that for all of his brilliance and uh, supposed professorship, when it came to being political at the right times, maybe Prost would let his emotions overrule his head. Yeah, and in fairness, Honda's position on this was always that the engines arrived at the track and I think the mechanics flipped a coin to decide who got what. But Alan was adamant that he'd seen boxes um, during his time at McLaren with things like engine for, or special for Ayrton, I think was the quote he used. But despite leading Senna by 20 points in the championship with just 36 remaining in the year of nine points for a win, Prost arrived in Portugal still pretty downbeat. He admitted he didn't feel comfortable with the problems that were going on behind the scenes and that was picked up on by those that were working with him at McLaren as well. In the book titled Alain Prost McLaren, put together by Maurice Hamilton, McLaren's Dave Ryan said it was noticeable how Prost's demeanour changed as the Senna feud took its toll. Ryan said, as 1989 went on, we could see he was no longer the bubbly guy he had been. There was a definite change. This, the time with Ayrton left its mark. Perhaps Alan didn't handle that situation particularly well, but the reality is he probably was hard done by. Saying that, he never complained to the guys in the garage. When, we was, when he was with us, he did his job. 
Interestingly, in that same book, Ron Dennis said that uh, he felt Prost left for Ferrari after 1989 because by that time, he just couldn't cope with Ayrton in the other car. So, Sam, looking at the wider story here, should Prost have been able to handle this situation better than he did? It's a yes and no, really, for me. I think which kind of befits this this complex and fascinating year for Prost. You can understand why the Senna and Honda love affair riled him. I mean, that's just natural. But I think he could deal with that over the course of a season to some extent. Although, you know, clearly it, it sort of piqued his irie a little bit um, before Estrell. But it, it was it was really the I think the deepening relationship between Ron Dennis and Senna that actually probably hurt him more. And I remember that the prostered, you know, he, he, he was such a part of McLaren. He was McLaren for so many years before this and had brought two titles in 85 and 86, arguably should have won in 84 as well. It all seemed like a match made in heaven. And, and then, you know, Senna arrives with this existing, pre-existing relationship with Honda. So, you know, I think around... If you'd have thought about it in 86, 87, you could genuinely have seen Prost seeing out his career at McLaren um, and matching, if not beating, Fanjo's then record five titles. But as I said, Senna then arrived and, and changed that that whole vibe, really, in the team. What, what I think a lot of us don't appreciate in the Prost and Senna thing was that they, they were just at very different stages of their career. There's There's been this kind of myth that's brewed up since Senna's death, along with many others, that, you know, that... that they shared a lot in terms of the same challenges and character and values. Well, you know, I think a lot of that is rubbish, to be honest. I think Prost was five years older than Senna and didn't have the same type of motivations as Senna at that early stage, well, at that stage of their careers. The way they operated, yes, it did have some similarities, but they were vastly different um, different characters. I think Prost could and should have handled things a lot better, yes. But after Senna won the title in '88. He was the irresistible force and he was the immovable object, wasn't he? So what Prost should have realised with all his experience with it, it was just never going to work in the team. And he probably should have realised that a lot earlier and, and potentially got another drive for, for 89. Um, but it was just a year of pain in 89 for him. And he, those signals that, you know, 12 months earlier in Estrell when Senna fainted across and almost put him in the pit wall, you know that that should really that was a, a literal physical thing that that should have realized that Pro should have realized that you know he sh it was over at McLaren. Um, so I don't think it could have been that clearer to him. He could have handled it better. And when you look at the more experience that he had in F one, um, you know he had he had four four extra seasons on Senna, and, and I think he should have probably used those to to his benefit at that stage. Away from McLaren, another big story in Portugal was the debut of a new car for Williams, the FW13. Williams had contested the first 12 races of the year with the FW12C, which was an updated version of its 1988 car adapted to take the new Renault V10 engine for 1989. The FW13 would be Williams' car throughout 1990. So depending on how you want to look at this, it was either the latest arrival for a new car ever or so close to the end of so close to the end of the season, or actually the earliest start we've ever seen of a new car, given Williams was getting four races in at the end of '89 with it. Williams technical guru Patrick Head played down the introduction of a new car at the time, saying it was nothing startling and that it was just putting a new front end on the new rear that had been designed for the switch from Judd to Renault Power for 1989. 
However, reflecting on the FW13 for Maurice Hamilton's book about the history of Williams, Patrick was brutally honest. Shock. He said, The FW13 was really an abject failure. We had moved our wind tunnel from the original factory and the commissioning of the wind tunnel in the new factory had been done extremely badly. In the keenness to get it up and operating, the proper check to see it was functioning had not been done. We had done a test in the wind tunnel that showed a, that a higher nose and front wing had given us 150 pounds of downforce and we thought that was the way to go. I asked for the test to be done again and the 150 pounds of downforce had disappeared. We thought there was no point in doing it for nothing, so we didn't. So Sam, thinking about a team introducing a new car four races from the end of the season, is that the most bizarre timing for a new car to arrive that you can think of? It is actually. I, I can't think of I can't think of another top team introducing a car that, that late in a season, or let's call it a you know a Frankenstein car, because that's what this was. It was stitching one end onto another and, and giving it an, another designation. Well, you know, es Estrell was a slow start. For, for that car and, and you know Patrese was almost two seconds away from pole but you know it still started six on the grid you know try and explain that to today's drive to survive infused audiences it's quite quite difficult to isn't it but the car was really erratic that weekend in Estrell I, I watched a bit of YouTube coverage of the practice sessions and and, it, and the thing was really unstable on the straight you could see that it was ducking and weaving and bobbing around so i don't think they quite thought that through it obviously needed a lot more testing but boots had lost his front nose portion in practice and and it had dislodged itself it clearly wasn't ready to um to race in that in that package in that format you know doing that bringing two different ends of the car and and trying to get it to work um, I actually ultimately Williams did a pretty decent job. You know, it was it, it was scoring points in the um, in in the next race and, and finished the season off reasonably well with that victory in in Adelaide. So, um, but yeah, very bizarre. And it just you know it's probably a legacy and a knock on of the fact that they had that sort of interim season in '88 with the Judd, and then the the Renault was actually you know, pretty pretty late to the party. Um and they used the the twelve C. Um could they have waited or should they have waited till till ninety? Probably. You know, the the twelve C actually got some really good results earlier in the season. Boots and one in um, Montreal in albeit in the wet and, and Patrese had a, a run of three consecutive second positions. But um they they chose to blood it quickly in the races and um yeah, not not ideal, but at least they gave it a go. Let's get into what we'll call the Arrows section of this episode, as there was quite a bit of Arrows news going on around the time of this race. The first story was that Ross Braun would be leaving his role as chief designer, heading off to work for Tom Walkinshaw's Jaguar team in sports cars. Braun said in his book that it was Arrows' current drivers, Eddie Cheever and Derek Warwick, that enticed him to make the move, as they'd been racing in sports cars as well, and he found the new Group C rule set fabulous because it was Formula One with covered wheels and the rules were very loose. Summing up his three years at Arrows, Braun said, It wasn't bad. It was a great period for me because it was the first time I had taken on that level of responsibility. I was designing the cars myself. The difficulty was they always ran out of money halfway through the year, so we would make a great start and we'd fade during the year, which got incredibly frustrating. Now Andy, Arrows finished 7th, 5th and 7th during 
Braun's time there in the Constructors' Championship. How good a job do you think he did with them? This is quite an interesting question because I was thinking back to the time when all this was going on and obviously I was an avid reader of Autosport and whatever. The the key or superstar designers then were Gordon Murray, John Barnard, Steve Nichols, you know, Harvey Poswait, Patrick Head. I don't really recall Ross Braun's name being mentioned that much. I was aware of him because I was pouring over Pitt and Paddock like, you know, I needed to know every word of it. But obviously in that season where they'd finished fifth, they were running the Megatron Turbo, so they had an enormous horsepower advantage so long as they could make the fuel last to the end. So I'm not sure that I really paid that much attention to what they were doing technically. I'm thinking back to those cars, the the uh, the 87, 88 cars, they look neat. I and mean, we obviously had that nice UF and g livery on them. I never know what they did. Was it clothing or something, wasn't it? I've, I've no idea. And then, you know, the car for uh, this year was quite interesting looking but I guess it was one of those ones where they had the same driver lineup for like a million years and you're never quite sure how good the car is when you when you have teammates that are together for that long but it wasn't I never really thought about arrows in that way but clearly they didn't have a lot of money they did on occasion punch above their weight but I think the circumstances were more to do with the way the transition that Formula One was in. Now, obviously, in hindsight, you look back like at that uh, Haas car that Newey and Braun worked on, you think, oh, that must have been amazing. But of course, it can only really be as good as the resources that you've got at your disposal. And as Ross says in his quotes there, they never really had the money to see it through. So I think, I mean, they did all right. They did a very arrows job. I don't know what they, how they finished in the constructors the years after that, but I imagine that quite a lot of the time they were between fifth and seventh. I think they had a bit of a decline in the early 90s uh oh yeah i am forgetting the uh, the porsche footwork nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to footwork in a moment arrows did at least have a notable incoming on the driver front with michele alberetto signing up to join them for 1990 after his rocky 1989 that involved a split with tyrrell and then turning up at la russe this was still only 12 months on from when Alberto had been a Ferrari driver and he admitted that he needed some stability back in his life. Speaking about the move to Arrows, he said, At the moment, Arrows is the best solution for me. It's quite a good team. I need a quiet season to prepare to come back. This year has been really bad from that point of view. So Sam, as I mentioned there, a year before this, Alberto was still at Ferrari. How far had his stock fallen in those 12 months? Was he... Was he damaged goods by now or was this a good signing for Arrows? Um, I, I think when you look at the drop-off for Michele at Ferrari, it, it actually came in back in 87 when, when Berger arrived and, and just got the better of him. He, he was quicker and he got better results. Um, I think he was quite lucky to stay in a way for 88 at Ferrari. Um, there was He did seem like a spent force in terms of being an out-and-out Grand Prix winner or challenging to be a winner the reality though was that he was still a very capable driver of course um and very good on his day Tyrrell found that out in Monaco and Mexico where he scored fifth and, and third places respectively in a, in a new car so you know we, we've touched upon the switch to LaRousse or the 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 exit from Tyrrell which you know still sort of shrouded in some mystery to this day but um you know it didn't work with with LaRousse it was a bit of a disaster you know the Lola and Lamborghini project was still finding its feet and didn't come into its own until 1990. I mean, imagine what Michele might have done done with that lovely uh, Lola LC90 because, 
when you consider that rookies like Suzuki and Bernard were finishing consistently in the top six, then you know Michele certainly could have could have got podiums. I think in in ninety had he stayed there, was it a good move? Yeah, I think it was a good move for for Jackie Oliver. I think he could see that that Alberto wasn't a spent force and that, and that had more to give. Um, and and on his day, the the old flashes of brilliance were still there. It's it's one of those things, isn't it? A bit like Patrese after those wilderness years at Alfa Romeo in the mid eighties, or even Jacques Lafitte um, after he was so poor in for Frank Williams in in eighty four. You know, they have this um, they have this you know this this late flowering um, results and and this kind of Indian summer. So you know it wasn't quite over for Michele and I I think it was the perfect fit for Arrows at that time when they obviously lost Warwick. Warwick to Lotus and and Cheever had gone back to uh, had gone to IndyCar, so I think a good move all around, really. Yeah, I was just um, thinking that there was correct me if I'm wrong. I think there was a lot of rumours ahead of the this season about him going to Williams, and I think that would have been quite a smart move on both sides there. Well, I agree completely with Sam that his days at, as a peak race winning driver had been obliterated when Berger came on the scene in '87, and '87 spec Berger I think was the most exciting thing on the grid. I just loved watching him in that fantastic '87 Ferrari. But I think there was he still had something to offer in terms of the experience that he was bringing that probably warranted a place slightly further up the grid. And obviously, we're going to get into how uh, what what might have come with with that footwork uh, thing in, at another time. But I, I think there was still so, Alberto still had something to offer. We'll stick with Arrows for a little bit longer and we will mention its future partner, Footwork, because at this stage of 1989, Footwork was working on its own F1 project with the intention of scaling up its F3000 operation to become a fully-fledged F1 team. However, just a few months later, in January 1990, Footwork would buy into Arrows and this was after failed talks with Tyrrell and Onyx. Tyrrell said the money Footwork had wasn't enough for the stake that they wanted, and Onyx's enigmatic backer Jean-Pierre Van Rossum uh, said his team didn't need the money. And we'll come back to him and Onyx's finances shortly. Footwork owner Wataru Ahashi tasked his European coordinator John Wickham with finding a way to get Footwork onto the grid, and eventually any ideas of setting up a team gave way to buying into one, which Wickham suggested to Motorsport magazine in 2020 was always the main intention. But Andy, thinking back to this period, this was still the peak for anyone and everyone thinking they could set up their own F1 team and work their way up from pre-qualifying to become an established operation. What do you make of what Footwork did? Did they take a better approach by buying into a team that was already on the grid? When I saw this question on the script, I sort of ended up going down a really sort of philosophical answer to it. And I think both Sam and I around the, the time that all this was playing out were 14, 15 years old. And there's something around the fandom and the way you experience things at that time that's very different to how it becomes as you get older and, and more mature. And it's like, there is like the one love uh, that you have. And um, I so adored Formula One at this time. You know, I would literally pour over everything I could get. I must have bought about 16 different season previews to this season as everybody put them out. And 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 part of the reason for that was because of the way that teams could come in, set it up and, you know, establish themselves. And it wasn't quite just get a DFE and a Hewland, but you almost could, right? There was the you could get a relatively competitive engine if you had a, enough resources and a and a good designer. 
as Jordan would show, and his, uh, as we'll talk about later with the Onyx here, and even um, Sam mentioned that uh, debut for the Colonia, Moreno put it 15th on the grid. You know, it was a, it was a half-decent car. Just getting out of uh, pre-qualifying was almost impossible because if it, I think they had about six people working at Colonia at the time. If they were the smallest technical problem, they were done for the day. Um, but going back to the actual question, I do think a team like Arrows that have been around for a long time has an established infrastructure, had come close to winning races and be operating at a relatively high level. I don't know what they paid for it, but I, I imagine that Jackie Oliver knew the value of a pound, so they probably put quite a lot of money in. In theory, that was quite a smart move. Now, would they have been better off, I don't know, go, go into a Peter Cyber or somebody like this that's operating outside of F1 and partnering with them? Maybe, but I think... Uh, Buying into arrows was a logical thing for them to do at the time, especially as we discussed earlier, them hovering, you know, at that sort of in between the, the front end of the midfield regularly. Now, we briefly mentioned Onyx and they were in the news in the build up to this weekend as well as they fired Bertrand Gachot. The team claimed this was because Gachot had made negative comments in the Belgian media, which he denied. And by the time he learned of this on the Wednesday before the race, he was already in Portugal. So let's hear Gachot's version of this story, which he recently told to Tom Clarkson on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast. Basically, the team needed money. Van Rossum, as we know, didn't have the resources, so he had to find a way. And uh, KK Rosberg came and promised him to millions of dollars if he took JJ Leto. I remember I was in Portugal with my girlfriend on the beach and I came back to the hotel because before the race, you know, we came to Portugal. I went to the beach during the day and the afternoon I come back to the hotel and they say, so what do you say about being fired? And I looked at them and I said, have I been fired? And they said, yeah, you've been fired. And I said, why? And they said, you held a press conference in Belgium? I said, no, but I'm here. And I said, it's a mistake. So I went to see Van Rossum that night and he said, uh, look, I have no choice. He gave me a contract that he would pay me uh, so much money. And uh, I thought to myself, I take the money. Basically, he was going to give me 1 million out of the 3 million or 4 million that Rosberg was going to pay him for JJ Leto. I just took the contract and I said, it's better to get out of here. That Gasho interview is well worth checking out, I must say, even if only to hear his side of the story that ended up with him in prison and Michael Schumacher getting to make his F1 debut for Jordan at Spa in 1991. But back to 1989, a day after announcing Gasho was fired, Van Rossum said it was just a one-race suspension, but the race team on the ground in Portugal were saying Gasho wouldn't race for Onyx again. Onyx's lead driver, Stefan Johansson, who we'll come back to later, said money was always tight. He told Motorsport magazine in 2010, the team was right on the edge with money. Funds wouldn't, would appear just in time to get to the next race, but I couldn't get paid. Race followed race without a sniff. And he said he eventually got paid at the penultimate race of the season in Japan, where he was given his entire salary of nearly $1 million in cash. So we'll, uh, we'll tell that story in more depth when we do Suzuka 89. Uh, that's not dodgy at all, Glenn. That's absolutely... Yeah, that's straight up. I'm sure, I'm sure getting uh, what bags and bags of cash out of Japan is not difficult at all. But Sam, around this time, Onyx had turned down significant investment from Footwork and now couldn't make up its mind if it had fired one of its drivers or not. It's planning to pay Johansson in a few weeks' time in cash. Is it any wonder this team wouldn't last even another 12 months from this point? 
Absolutely none at all. No, I mean, <laughs> which which was just a huge shame, wasn't it? Because it had so much going for it, particularly Johansson, Alan Jenkins, Mike Earl, who were running was running it. Um, but with Van Rossum at the helm, uh, who who surely has a claim to be the most bonkers F one entrant ever, it was always going to be a disaster, really. Um, Actually, it's, the whole thing's pretty criminal, and I use that word in the broadest sense possible, that, that the team failed. Um, if it had been run properly, then it could have become a, another Jordan or a Sauber and stayed in F1 for decades and had a lot of success, no doubt about that. The constituent parts, or many of them, were great. It was just that it was kind of a product of its time, wasn't it? You know, V2B was talking before about that sort of thing. Those late 80s capitalist dreams which spawned easy money schemes and, and would get everyone very rich, well, they, they were two a penny, really. But it just happened to be that this was the, the mother and father of all of them with this really just a, a dodgy Ponzi scheme, let's say. I mean, Van Rossum, Van Rossum was actually a Marxist economist. Now, I'm no expert on business matters, but I'm pretty sure that's not a great combination. <laughs> I mean, you know, a wild-haired Marxist at that, uh, and he had a supercomputer that no one had ever seen that was called Moneytron uh, that claimed to generate £7 billion of, of assets. I mean, what what possibly could go wrong? Um, as he said himself, the man said himself, if you show a million returns to millionaires, they no longer ask questions. Um, so, you know, in terms of in terms of motifs for teams, I think that's got to be one of the um, the most bizarre at all. I, I just think, you know, he, he signed his, he signed off his own epitaph there, didn't he? I mean, it's just a ludicrous scheme that was never going to work. You, you, you wouldn't believe that if if it was an episode of Doctor Who or something, would you? I mean, it was just utterly bizarre. I was 14 in 1989 and, and even I didn't believe in any of it. So um, what chance did the team have of surviving? Yeah, very little. It, it was it last summer he died or the summer before? Anyway, there were some just phenomenal stories that came out in obituaries there and people should go and check. I don't, I don't think the whole podcast could do them justice as some of them. No, agreed. And I, I, mean, I think... Uh, we'll just, we'll sum him up as a character, which is a word you can you can read into that word what you would what you would like. It's a great euphemism. Yeah, yeah. But uh, however, brilliant little car, brilliant little team with some good people. I was very fond of Onyx, and it's a shame they didn't stick around for longer. Up to the front of the grid, though, and there was a departure at Ferrari, where iconic designer John Barnard was on his way out. And a week later, he would be announced at Benetton. But we'll save that part of the story for a Jerez 1989 episode in the future. As for his Ferrari exit, Barnard felt that the political pressure within Ferrari had become too much by 1989, despite producing the second best car on the grid and creating the paddle shift gear change mechanism for that season. The main point of contention between Barnard and Ferrari was of course that he was running his own design office from the UK rather than working full-time from Maranello. Enzo Ferrari had signed off on this when he brought Barnard in for 1987, but after Enzo's death in 1988, Barnard had less protection from the politics of Ferrari. In his book titled The Perfect Car, Barnard accepted that trying to work from England was difficult, and he admitted that there was secrecy from both sides of the England-Italy divide. Interestingly, he said that revisiting what he went through in step-by-step detail for the book opened his eyes to what it was actually like. He said, it brings home the hill I was pushing up 
uh, was even steeper than I realised and shows just how difficult it was day to day to make progress at Ferrari, where you were faced not just with technical problems, but massive political chicanery. I was dreading the phone ringing with news of more crap from Maranello. To Andy, famously, Barnard would go back to Ferrari and, and do this again, but was his desire to run the design operation from the UK instead of Italy always doomed? When you look at things through the prism of today, you know, we're all remote working, we're recording this remotely, and it's, you know, it's almost second nature now, and to the point where, you know, I don't envisage us ever going back to an office five days a week. But this was a two generations ago, before effectively the internet as we know existed, I don't know how we thought it could be anything else other than a failure, really. You know, Ferrari is, had always been a peak and trophy team, but that bit in the early 80s when, tragically, they didn't win championships when they should have done was by Postlethwaite going there and gelling the chassis and engine bits together. We know Enzo was an engine man. You know, they would have his ear. They, would all, they were always right. The chassis guys were always wrong. If you're going to put in a, a thousand or more miles between you, You've got no hope of success, especially, you know, at the time when you're limited by the how the technology can work. So I can understand his desire. And as always with Barnard, he was 30 years ahead of his time. You know, it would work a treat now, as it does for lots of these things. But in 1987, it had a 0% chance of success. And uh, they, they got the inevitable outcome of that. He still managed to produce one of the most uh, influential, groundbreaking cars of all time. Um, it just never delivered on its potential. Yeah, groundbreaking and beautiful. Barnard's Ferrari departure took a final turn after the race in Portugal when he was flown by private jet to team boss Cesare Fiorio's house for talks over a new deal. Barnard said he had an offer from Benetton, which he says prompted a big show of asking me to stay. But he said for all the bluster, a concrete offer was never made and he suspected Fiorio wasn't that fussed about keeping him on board. Barnard added, Cesare had obviously been given, had been asked by the higher-ups to keep me on board. Furio's a politician. He wanted to be kingpin. All the Italians want to be kingpin at Ferrari. I was probably too powerful. So Sam, given the difficulties we've discussed there of managing offices in the UK and Italy, was Furio right to have these doubts about keeping Barnard or was he just playing politics? I, I, I tend to think the latter. Um, you know, Fiorio was imbued in in politics through through his years at Lancia and and at Ferrari. You know, he, he didn't have a, a long career at Ferrari, but it was a a notable one in in that sort of eighty post Enzo period to to that debacle in nineteen ninety one. And um, you know, I, I always got the opinion that he was he was he was reasonably Machiavellian in what was going on. Um, he did preside over two pretty competitive seasons in 89 and 90 um but i think it was pretty telling what john barnard said there wasn't it that that you know his his power had grown substantially from the his second period um at ferrari as opposed to the to the first in the in the mid 80s so it it was probably that there was a lot of jostling there was a lot of jockeying positions um, in Ferrari um, and, and also within Fiat um, who were the owners of Ferrari at that time and I think that was just a legacy of, of the, the power vacuum that was created when Enzo died the um, the previous summer so it was a legacy of that and in typical Ferrari style in the in this period it, it just 
it just created a, a you know another layer of mess on top of a mess and, and ultimately probably contributed to to what happened in 91 when it all it all um, it all fell over and and then de Montezemolo came back for his second bite at the ferrari cherry so you know i think i think barnard it was inevitable in some ways that he was going to move on, but I don't think he even he anticipated that it would be so so quickly. But obviously, you know what um, what was Ferrari's loss was was ultimately Benetton's gain. There was another change in the driver lineup for this weekend, although this one was far less contentious than the one we discussed at Onyx, as it was only temporary. With Johnny Herbert being called up for the second time to replace Jean Alesi at Tyrrell, as Alesi focused on his ultimately successful F3000 campaign. Herbert had driven for Tyrrell at Spa as well a few weeks earlier and this had given him a handy route back into F1 after he was dropped by Benetton earlier in the year, which we talked about in depth in our France 89 episode in the past. Herbert said in his book that he jumped at the chance to get back to racing with Tyrrell, but he now accepts that was a mistake and he should have kept focusing on his battle back to fitness following his injuries sustained in his massive 3000 crash at Brands Hatch in 1988, which had put his entire career in jeopardy. Johnny said, I was feeling a heck of a lot better, but even so, what I should have done was politely refuse the offer, keep my head down and carry on working. I don't think you'll find a racing driver anywhere on earth who would have done that. Johnny failed to qualify in Portugal, missing the cut by 17 thousandths of a second. He described the weekend as a disaster, adding, at least it made me appreciate once and for all that if I was ever going to get back into Formula 1 on a permanent basis, I was first going to have to spend a bit of time away from it. Sam, it would be just over a year before Johnny would be back in action on an F1 race weekend after this. How important was it for him to go away and get himself right physically and mentally after what he'd been through in the previous 12 months? I think the simple truth was that he should never really actually have been in a racing car at all at that level in early 89. I mean, for all the heroics of Rio, it was probably irresponsible for anyone to get him driving that early, just a few months after almost having his foot amputated. I say say all that with some hindsight, of course, and and I'm not belittling that incredible achievement, getting fourth in Rio, because personally... I think it's right up there with with Lauda's bravery and determination at Monza in '76. It's it's in that bracket definitely as a courageous act. I think if he'd have taken 1989 completely to reset himself and maybe raced over in Japan earlier and got back to a fuller fitness, it, it would have paid massive dividends in the end. I mean, why couldn't Pirro have done the first half until Johnny was fit, say, in 89? Um, but yeah, it's a lot of hindsight there. I think the, the feeling at the time in Formula 1 is that, you know, if, if you, you only really had one chance of it in, in 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 the highest category, and I suppose that came from drivers such as Stephen South earlier in the 80s and, and Mike Thackwell to some extent, where, you know, they were so young and they got an early chance and then it never really came back for them. I think the fact that he did go to Japan and did those few cameos with Tyrrell and Lotus in 89 and 90 was the next next best thing for him. Um, and it worked out well by 91 with that full-time drive and, and Le Mans win. I still think the way he was treated by Briatore early on in 89 was 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 shoddy. You know, to have to have Pirro waiting at the airport um, and putting pressure on Johnny when he's not even finished a, or started a Grand Prix was was a bit much. Um, you know, if you're going to commit to a driver, then at least give him a full, full and unconditional support. He had that from Peter Collins, of course, but 
Briatore's tentacles were already becoming ever powerful at the team by that stage. Uh, but it's entirely in keeping with Briatore's erratic way of dealing with, with drivers, isn't it? That, you know, he signed Herbert again at the end of, of 94 and then seemed to lose interest in him in, in 95. That's just the way it was. But, you know, ultimately, I think for Herbert, I think if if he'd have sat that period out and, and come back, he would have been even stronger and, and, and may have been even better. Who knows? Let's look at what made that weekend so difficult for Johnny. In the run-up to the event, his injured foot became infected. This was pretty common for him since his 3000 accident, although it never happened on a race weekend. And I won't go into the gruesome detail Johnny does in his book, other than to quote him saying, I had remnants of the accident emanating from me for about three years after the shunt. And it was never pleasant. And as I say, that's the toned down version. There is much more detail in Johnny's book if those sort of things are what you're into. The infection would make Johnny's foot swell up. And he said this made him look like a walking freak show in the paddock. He said, I was finding walking almost impossible. I remember trying to make my way down the paddock one afternoon and realising that everyone was staring at me. I couldn't bend my ankle at all. And my foot was about twice the size it normally was. God only knows what people must have been thinking. One thing's for sure, I wasn't doing my future prospects in F1 any good whatsoever by being there. Old Mr. Damaged Goods looked like he was in danger of being beyond repair. Things got even worse for Johnny when he picked up food poisoning after eating lobster on the Friday night. So in his quest to make the cut for the 26-car grid, he wasn't helped by constantly having to pull into the garage during qualifying to should we say, deal with the consequences of food poisoning. Johnny added, If this was nature's way of telling me to take a rest from Formula One, it was making its point loud and clear. So Andy, we've talked about the importance of don't miss your chance, you know, get on the train while it, when it's leaving the station. But is Johnny right that in the eyes of the F1 paddock, there's a crossover point where you go from being a trooper who never gives up to, in his words, damaged goods beyond repair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that makes Johnny such a lovely and engaging bloke is his sense of perspective on things. And and in this, he, he's absolutely nailed it. And Sam was quite right when he was talking about, you know, how you only get one shot and you've got to take it. But I think Johnny was, I mean, lucky is the wrong word given the whole set of circumstances that he's gone through. But fortunate that he was racing in a time of 30 cars, as we discussed. So there were opportunities to get back in and the fact that he had Peter Collins believing in him made that happen. I think had those sort of set of circumstances happened in a time of 20 cars, it's quite likely that he never would have found a way uh, back into F1, which would have, which would have been a travesty really. I mean, um, but it, by this point he was doing himself no favors at all, rocking up, clearly not being fit to race, struggling to get the car even onto the grid it's all downhill that there's something like which i'm coining the piastri effect at the minute which is every race he doesn't do he will get quicker yeah every time he's not in that car he gets a little bit quicker and in many ways if johnny had been dropped after rio he'd have been fantastically quick by the time it got to the end of the season because you just live on that little bit of reputation that you've shown so in the typical johnny fashion yeah, he's absolutely understood the situation he was in there yeah now, while Herbert was missing the cut at the front, Senna was comfortably on pole ahead of the two Ferraris with Prost only fourth. And behind Prost was the Minardi of Pierluigi Martini, who we'll come back to in a bit because that wasn't even the peak of his weekend. When the race got going, the Ferraris had the measure of Senna. 
Berger took the lead at the start, and on lap eight, Mansell went through as well to make it a Ferrari 1-2. Mansell then set about charging after Berger, who had cooked his tyres by pushing too hard at the beginning. On lap 24, Mansell got a run on Berger, who was, being, who was balked by a couple of backmarkers, Stefano Modena and Derek Warwick. Berger felt his seventh gear was too short as well, so he couldn't just breeze past the slower cars without running out of revs in their slipstream. So when he saw Mansell coming, he gestured to him to go through into the lead. But Mansell didn't stop there, passing Modena and Warwick in a three abreast pass into turn one as well. Sam, there's two things here, really. How remarkable was it after nearly two years of wall-to-wall -wall McLaren domination to see Ferrari in total control of a race? And what did you make of uh, Mansell's daring way to take the lead? Well, the, the Ferrari 640 always had the pace. Um, that was evident from Rio when it, it somehow held together to give Mansell that, that memorable debut win. Um, Berger should have had a few podiums at least, but had just had really desperate, unlucky reliability problems, consistent reliability problems. So it was always going to come together at some point. And at Estrell, it, it finally seemed to do that. The way Berger pulled away in the early stage of that race was really eye-catching. You know, he, he had the McLarens beaten but it was clear that he was also rooting his tires more so i mean it was a quick car and on that day it it was it was going to beat the mclarens come what may that the mansell move was was kind of fairly typical of nigel in that era wasn't it you know the, the moves that he made were always dramatic even if it was a slipstream he always got as close as possible to the car in front if it was a, a classic simple slipstream he always ducked out and jinked out and then you know tried to squeeze them or whatever there was never a there was never an easy pass um from Nigel so you, you couldn't fail to be impressed by that and, it, and his sheer courage I think at one stage it looked it looked dodgy in this moment because Modena and, and Warwick were having a scrap and I think he was fortunate that that it was Warwick who was so experienced and, and knew what was going on around him on that narrow pit straight it was a it was a nicely executed move but one in which I think was slightly given to him on a plate by Berger. You know, he was certainly aware that that Nigel was quicker and and, and had the better, the better slingshot out of that last corner. Um, but still, you know, Nigel had to judge it correctly, and he did so. Um, the last thing anyone wanted was for him to end up in the turn one gravel, wasn't it? You know, that would never do Estoril on that day. Unsurprisingly, Berger was the first of the leaders to pit, coming in on lap 34 once Senna had caught him back up. Berger said he'd been asking to come in for four laps and eventually he made the decision on his own to just drive into the pits. Senna was in a lap later and had a slow stop. Then four laps later, Mansell came in and this was the moment we mentioned earlier that transformed the race. Mansell came piling into the pits, completely overshot and missed his marks. Then before his mechanics could get to him, he whacked it into reverse and backed into his pit stall. Mansell said in his book, in the, uh, the one he released in the 1990s, that he only did this once he felt none of his mechanics were going to come and pull him back into position. Unfortunately, reversing in the pit lane was against the rules, but we'll come back to that element in a moment. Mansell blamed McLaren for obscuring his view of the Ferrari pit, claiming they left tyres and equipment in the way, even though both McLaren drivers have made their pit stops by this point. So Andy, just looking at the pit lane incident in isolation, any sympathy for Nigel here, or is this just an unacceptable blunder? So obviously I recalled this at the top of the show, and while I could see Mansell's reversing in, in my mind, I had I recalled 
those McLaren guys being right in the way. So I rewatched this about 20 times last night so I could get a very clear picture of it. And while they have they don't make any effort to get out of his way, they're, they're doing absolutely nothing wrong. He just simply comes in way too hot, locks up and goes by. The other bit, I take a little bit of... Uh, exception to what Nigel claims there is there's a guy at his car within like half a second trying to put it back yes. and, he, and he's gone the guy's there to try to put it push the wing and he's, he's just zipped out of the way I mean they couldn't push him as quickly as he reverses again but I'm just in awe of his reversing paper I, I see people who can't reverse park on my street as well as that every day so it's just uh, stunning but I do have a tiny bit of sympathy, though, because of the way the pit lanes were set up in those days. No pit lane speed limit, which just seems completely bonkers now. Dozens, there doesn't seem to be any limit to the number of people they can have there. It seems to be does scores of people scattered up and down the pit lane, just ambling about in shorts and T-shirts. I mean, it looks insanely dangerous, especially by today's standards. So that bit, I have a little bit of sympathy for him. But you've got to own your mistakes. And in this, it's his error, and he's got to own it. Yeah, I mean, you watch it, and I did the same thing. You read Nigel's account, and you go, "Really? Like, is my is my memory playing tricks on me?" I think he just he he comes piling into the pits, having negotiated that negotiated that little chicane on the way in, and I think he's just he's lost sort of his eye line is looking in the wrong place. You can see his helmet very clearly. I just think he's he's looking almost too far down the pits, and then by the time and he said this at the time, by the time he spotted the yellow shirts, it was too late of the Ferrari. Mechanics, but this was only the start of the drama. Mansell rejoined the race and he was black flagged for reversing in the pits, but he didn't see the flag, and by this point he was locked into a battle with Senna again. Mansell drove past the black flag three times, then he attacked Senna for second into the first corner and they collided, both being taken out on the spot. 1976 world champion James Hunt was commentating on the race for BBC and he blamed Senna for the clash, saying, there are times when a driver has to face he's been beaten to a corner and this was one of them. When Ayrton turned in, he gave Mansell no chance of avoiding him. Mansell had won the corner. So Sam, before we go back to the black flag controversy here, just looking at that collision in racing terms, what did you think? Is it a racing incident or was someone at fault? It's, it's actually a really difficult one to call. and, and probably. Co- I mean, I tend to go under the the bracket of racing incident I did then and I kind of do now in a way of course now you know there'd be hell and fury with five million twitter opinions um beating down my door but you know it it looked like it looked like a classic Senna offer of I'm shutting the door and if you don't like it we're gonna have a shunt that's what it looked like um unfortunately for Ayrton Mansell was usually the wrong person to give that ultimatum to uh, and a collision was inevitable the same thing happened at Spa in 87, didn't it? So those two, they were just the wrong people to get into that kind of scenario. In the context of the title fight, Senna, though, had absolutely no need to be that aggressive. And he was second at that stage and Prost was fourth. He was going to get, you know, I don't think he would have beaten Berger that day anyway. So it was probably a second and a third for McLaren if if that shouldn't have, have have happened. Although, you know, possibly even a third and fourth. It was a classic case of Ayrton not knowing when he was beaten to all intents and purposes. And it, and it really, at that stage, it looked like he'd completely ended any realistic title defence. Having said that, Mansell was nowhere near alongside, nowhere near 
in comparison to what he had done a few laps earlier when he'd taken Senna fair and square into turn one. So letter of the law, when you look at it, it's probably 60-40 Mansell's fault. But with the fact that he was black flagged, you can argue that, you know, it was Mansell being reckless as well and, and ignoring the flag. That's a separate issue. Or, or perhaps, you know, you can look at it as Senna and McLaren being caught on the back foot through poor communication. You know, where was the radio message to Senna? Where was the, the pit board saying that, you know, don't worry about Nigel? You know, that, that didn't come or it did just as the, the incident happened when it was too late. So when you put all that in the mix, you know, it's deciding who was at fault is, is a tough one. There's a lot going on in it, isn't there? I'm, I'm going to go with... Mansell being mostly at fault because ultimately he just wasn't he just didn't make the move completely stick um and then with the baggage of the black flag he and Ferrari have to take responsibility more than McLaren because you know they had triggered the the original infraction through Mansell's error I think this move completely encapsulates the single biggest flaw in Senna's armory uh, there is absolutely no way he didn't know that Mance was getting a black flag. You see it, I think it's three laps in a row, that Winstride's hanging over the pit lane, waving at them as they're going down there. He would have seen it, seen the number. He saw it more clearly than the TV commentators did. I mean, listening back to it, they didn't have a clue who was being there. Murray seems to decide it must be Senna because it couldn't possibly be Nigel because he's British, which is just the weirdest piece of commentary for a bit. Uh, then, then they seem to think that he's all right because he drove back in the pit lane, but he wasn't pushed, so that's probably. And then Dudeson basically goes, "Is Mansell because he drove back? You can't drive backwards in the pit lane, guys. It just can't happen. It takes an age for them to work out what it is. But anyway, but he knows this. Then Mansell has clearly pulled out of his slipstream and he turns into that corner as if there is a 0% chance that Mansell could be anywhere. So he, he, get, he makes no concession whatsoever for Mansell being there. A guy he's racing against who was going to be disqualified or at the very least have to come in a pit. That, that complete lack of compromise in his makeup there is in, more, in one way has made him absolutely brilliant, but there's also his single biggest flaw. So you're probably right, Sam, especially knowing that he was being black flag. Mansell shouldn't have done it. But it's the it's the way that Senna just does it, right? He doesn't even like take an inch over to the left to potentially give him some room. It's just bang, have it or not. It. I'm opening a can of worms here, but it is Silverstone 21, right? That is exactly what it is. Completely uncompromising. Yeah, we've got a few years before we're giving a uh, Silverstone 21 the uh, the bring back whatever this podcast will be called by then treatment. So yeah, we won't go there just yet. Mansell said he only learned when he got back to the Ferrari motorhome that he'd been black flagged. In his book, he wrote, I was tucked up under Ayrton's rear wing looking for a way past into the first corner. I genuinely had no idea. If I had known about the black flag, I certainly wouldn't have wasted my time fighting Senna. When you're locked in a fight like that, running right on his gearbox at close to 200 miles per hour, you don't see black flags. Ayrton said himself that he hadn't seen it and he was in front. As Sam hinted at there, McLaren boss Ron Dennis took some of the blame for not telling Senna sooner that Mansell was no longer a factor in the race. However, Ron was sure that Mansell would have seen the flag. Ron said, I could have avoided Ayrton being involved in that accident, but I made a mistake. It would have been easy for me to have advised him. I'd started talking to him along the straight and finished talking to him at the end of it. And he said, repeat, it was then that the accident happened. I think Nigel did know he was disqualified. I'm not saying how he was informed, whether it was visually, by radio or by the pit board, but I think he did know. I just don't buy this. He knew and that's all there is to it. So I'm going to ask you both this and uh, Andy, I'll ask you first. 
purely on the element of seeing the black flag, do you believe Nigel or do you think he knew? So I think it's the first lap where it's shown. He is so tightly up behind Senna's rear wing. I am willing to buy that version of the events on that first lap, but not over the two or three laps of the entirety, especially as we know how aware drivers are of their surroundings, even looking at um, big screens to see what the running order and everything is. The notion, oh, was that bloke on the gantry with a number 27 and a great big black flag? Oh, nothing to do with me. I just think I'm not buying it <laughs> at all. I'm willing to concede that radio technology was a bit rubbish then, and if you've got a scream in v10 in the back you're probably very hard to hear what's going on but i cannot i can't buy for a minute that they couldn't see that that flag was being held over the side there do you know what i i remember at the time having some sympathy for mansell and, and believe me i was not a big nigel fan at all um and that was because you know just going into what vdb said two of those three laps i think you know he was under senna's rear wing and then the lap that it happened they were lapping alberetto and again he was slingshotting alberetto and if you're doing that 190 miles an hour yeah I, I think that's a reasonable chance that you might not see and don't forget this was a stationary black flag so when you look at it you know, it's not been waved at them it is a stationary flag um so i i think mansell can be cut some slack there what we don't know is that I think the first lap that it was shown, and I don't think he was under anyone's rear wing, but you know he may just have been focusing on ahead. I I I I'd give him the benefit of the doubt more than V de B has there. You know, Senna confessed he never saw it, and actually, if anyone's going to see it, it should be Senna because you know he's he's not up anyone's chuff going down the um going down the pit straight. So, yeah, the radios. It's a good point V de B makes, and the radios so so much um so much uh, lack of clarity in those days with a with a big v12 in the back of of that ferrari but you know i think ultimately you know nigel i think may have been telling the truth here i'm not i'm not sure he always did in his career in some aspects but i, I think he could have been here and and it wasn't as if senna it wasn't as if taking senna out in a risky move was going to help Berger or you know the Mansell had no reason to to, to to make such a risky move there and I think Berger got all but six points to his name in the in the season it wasn't going to help him out even though he knew if he if he knew that he was going to be disqualified so I do have that sympathy for Mansell because I genuinely don't think he saw or there's a good chance he didn't see the black flag due just due to that intensity of of the of the chase to get to get center again. Interestingly, if you go to YouTube on the review, the official Foca review, um, you can see there's a pit cam, there's a static pit cam that shows Ron Dennis going up to the Ferrari um, Pratt perch just after the shunt, and there's a <laughs> there's a comedy exchange between them. And as Ron turns his back to go back to his pit, uh, Fioro just gives him the single digit for about five seconds, and and it ends there. So, you know, good old school, um, good old school deliberation between team principals there. And I absolutely would buy the fact that you pretend to ignore the flag because it gives them time to argue about it. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone has been disqualified before or since for this rules infraction. So you would be there trying to debate the rules and whatever. You don't want to just give up that place. Um, but I still I just refuse to buy that it wasn't seen by either of them. I just not having it. The only other element I would add in defence is that you've got a low sun in, directly in your eyes down that straight. It was, they were driving head on into the sun. So all you can maybe see is a silhouette of a guy. But 
the counter argument to that, of course, is what other flag are they going to be hand, hang, holding out with a number um, at that time? So there is some Mansell onboard footage, so you can go and look for that and, and decide for yourselves if it's clear enough. Um, and as the guy said, radios ex had started to exist by this point, but they they weren't very good. The fallout doesn't end there, though, as Mansell was fined $50,000 and banned from the next race at Hereth. Mansell appealed, but the FIA International Court of Appeal wasn't able to convene in time to hear the case before Hereth, which was the weekend after Portugal. And bizarrely, Mansell couldn't race under appeal because officially it was an exclusion and drivers could only race under appeal back then if it was a suspension or a disqualification. So if you think the FIA only deals in nonsense in modern F1, there's an example that's been going on for ages. The case rumbled on for weeks before Ferrari dropped it, but we won't get into that. We will just briefly focus on Jerez, though. Ferrari was allowed to name a replacement driver, but it didn't, and Mansell attended the track to give a press conference where he claimed this might be the last time anyone saw him as an F1 driver, and he questioned the process and the severity of the punishment. He accepted that he deserved to be fined for reversing in the pits and not seeing the black flag, but he felt he was being made a scapegoat for ruining the championship because his collision with Senna left Prost in a very comfortable championship lead. Mansell said at Jerez, I cannot believe this is happening. This is a complete nonsense. I do not and will not accept this. Mansell felt this was the work of enigmatic FISA president Jean-Marie Belest, but Belest said it was, more, uh, it was more simple than punishing Mansell for impacting the championship. He said, I like Nigel, but if you are driving down the road and you're not paying attention and you don't see a red light, then you must be punished. Here, it's the same thing. FISA also criticised certain members of the media for creating a muddle over the situation, which sounds a lot to me like how the FIA initially reacted to the coverage of the 2021 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. But Andy, let's forget about 2021 if we possibly can. Was a one-race ban fair punishment for Mansell here, given everything that had gone on? No, it's absolutely outrageous. And I, <laughs> he is absolutely right to be livid about this. The fine bang on you know it's a lot of money as well especially in 1989 terms but the one race ban no it's completely disproportionate to anything that's gone on here um and you know for people who weren't aware of how motorsport operated at the time this is an exact example of what used to get people so angry there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason and consistency now that might seem like a very familiar uh <laughs> way of them operating now but it's it's a, so much better compared to what it was then um no i think he was completely stitched up here and um, i'm surprised that they ultimately relented there must have been something that they were promised or given or whatever in the background to let that go because i would think they were uh, on very firm footing on uh, uh, pr protesting that obviously you can't rerun the spanish grand prix so it's a bit of a moot or fearic victory if they did uh, if they had won it yeah um i think we, uh, we as i say we won't get into it now but yeah they Basically, the only thing they could do by pushing on with the appeal was try to get the Spanish Grand Prix voided, um, which Ferrari realised was was basically irrelevant. But yeah, they, they've been very good over the years and even still are today at, at doing some trading in the background to get something they want in exchange for uh, agreeing to something else. But let's get back to the rest of the race in Portugal, because briefly, when those leading cars had all pitted and just after Mansell's botched pit stop, 
Pierluigi Martini's Minardi led the race for a lap. This was the only lap a Minardi ever led in F1, so we have to celebrate it. And Martini was then passed by Berger and Senna as they came back through after their pit stops. Martini faded later in the race as he struggled with a stiff neck, but he finished fifth in the end, helped by the new Williamses both blowing up with just over 10 or 11 laps to go. But this was a big deal for Martini as well, as he'd also just agreed a deal to stay with Minardi for 1990. Speaking about the new deal, Martini said, I spoke with several other teams, but they are more or less on the same level as Minardi, so why change? I decided to stay because I believe in the team and Pirelli. As for Minardi's performance that weekend, he added, What is happening is the fruit of eight or nine months' very hard work. This has been a great weekend for our team and a nice way to celebrate the fact that I'm staying next year. So, Sam, this was a great weekend for Minardi, one of the, one of the best moments in their history. And how fitting was it that such a milestone should be claimed by Martini, who is surely the most iconic Minardi driver? Yeah, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Because until the 89 season, Minardi had shown absolutely no hint of ever troubling the point scorers. Uh, that was until the Pirelli deal and, and also the M189, which was co-designed by a very young Aldo Costa, actually, who went on to win so much with Ferrari and, and um, Mercedes over the years. Uh, for Martini to be the driver that led that lap and also got the first points back, um, or those big points, let's say, at, at Silverstone, was entirely fitting um especially for geeks like me it was it was exactly what the world had been waiting for so um you know when a very raw martini came in for that disastrous first minardi season in 85 it looked like he destroyed his career pretty much i mean he was he was cut adrift at the back um but rebuilding it in set with several strong former 3000 campaigns um sort of just um made him a stronger driver and got him back into F1. You know, on, on his day, Martini was a real contender. I think in a decent car or a consistently decent car, I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have, he could have got a Grand Prix win, no doubt about it. I, I thought he was really good enough. But yeah, it was the, it was the feel-good story of, of of that race weekend, wasn't it? And probably of, of 89 as well. I was saying earlier about how very much in love I was with Formula I think this might be my single favourite thing that's ever happened in Formula 1 you know Minardi leading that lap and watching the uh, the rerun of the race last night I hadn't really seen it before but after Berger passes him and so does Senna they're lapping uh, one of the Lolas and he has a little nibble in the back of the screen, back at centre, trying to overtake him. It's like, come on! You know, um, and it's just the, the the whole romance of it. Like you, Sam, I desperately wanted to see him get in a good car, but I've got a feeling he was Giancarlo Fisichella and he was would have been mega in a midfield car and nowhere near good enough uh, in a front-running car. But the fact he never did makes it a brilliant what-if story because there's no proof to take either side of that uh, argument. But I, it's, it's just such a brilliant moment in uh, a time when... Yeah, a tiny little team in Italy could lead a Grand Prix. Lovely. Yeah, we've got so much time here for Minardi. We always find ways to squeeze them into episodes when we can. And brilliant. Just a, a, it's such a such a nice looking car as well in, in 1989. So, yeah, uh, how can you not love Minardi? But back to the front. With Mansell and Senna out of the race, Berger took a comfortable win by over half a minute from Prost. Um, and I'll just quickly say... Berger's full onboard from this race exists on YouTube. So if you do if you do a clever bit of searching, uh, something like Gerhard Berger, full onboard, 1989 Portuguese Grand Prix, something like that 
Obviously, the first few laps are quite boring because he's driving around at, his, on, at the front on his own. But it's not long before he catches the back markers and then it is a busy race from there on in. So, yeah, if you've got a spare two hours at any point uh, after listening to this episode, go and find that. But as we say, Prost gave a pretty downbeat interview after this race, despite finishing second and, and solidifying his, his championship hopes. Let's have a quick listen to some of the comments Prost made after the race. It was a difficult race again today. I was a bit lucky, but don't want to care too much about what happened in the front. I just did my race I wanted to do, a bit safe, because there's nothing I could do against a Ferrari today. My chassis was not very good, and... Uh, and I uh, had some bad vibration, was very tiring. As soon as I wanted to push a bit harder, it was very difficult for me to keep going. I was able, the car was able to go quicker, but uh, it was very, very difficult. So, I mean, I was quite happy when I saw I was second. It was very difficult to find the motivation before, I mean, especially this year with all the problems. And I think it's going to be even more difficult now because uh, I, I think I just went, I think 24 points should be enough but uh, uh Ethan has to win the next three races he's able to do it but i really think that the ferrari is able to win at least one race so i see andy we talked earlier about the toll this year took on prost have you ever known a driver on the brink of winning a world championship to sound so downbeat it's amazing isn't it i mean it's completely feels completely out of context for where he was in uh in the championship with that, those ridiculous drop scores i mean how complicated were they to try and get your head around? Well, you were three, so it would have been impossible for you, even with the, oh, all, no all, all the abacuses in the world. Um, even I hated them, though. <laughs> they, were, they were awful. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was all but there in terms of winning the championship. He had a, I think the deal had been done to, for, to go to Ferrari by this point, and everything seemingly good. Yeah, completely um, at odds with his demeanour and everything there. Really, but I think that goes to show just how horrible for him personally it was at that point in time i mean in this race you'd struggle to know he was even there He's, he appears on the highlights for about 30 seconds you definitely definitely see more of uh the back markers going around than you do of prost in this race it's it's such a dialed in performance to a second place um but yeah and i think you know as sam had mentioned at the top this uh, fantastic mclaren relationship had all completely run its course at this point in time and i think you know uh, as he would almost have done later on. If if he'd just been crowned a champion, he probably would have disappeared and not bothered with the last few races of the season. Things had got to that point by that, by now. Yeah, yeah, he's just, he's, he's utterly, utterly miserable. But let's end the episode on a positive and another fairy tale story because we're back with Onyx because sacking Gasho wasn't the most notable thing about that team from this weekend because after getting through the hell of pre-qualifying on Friday morning, Lead driver Stefan Johansson went without a pit stop to finish third behind Berger and Prost. And I have to say, I, I totally agree, this must be one of Prost's most anonymous performances. Johansson said Onyx had this strategy in mind from the start of the weekend and they prepared their race tyres by putting a very gentle heat cycle through them in practice to harden them and make them more durable for Sunday. Then after making quick progress from 12th on the grid up to 8th, he sat tight and picked up places as other cars pitted or retired. Johansson said by the end of the race, the canvas of the left front tyre was showing. And then as a sign of how tight everything was, 
Um, he ran out of fuel on the slowing down lap and missed the majority of the podium ceremony. And he only arrives once Berger and Prost are already spraying the champagne and he appears through a, a little doorway that opens. On F1's Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, Johansson said this was probably his most satisfying podium finish of his career, even if he felt he had better drives earlier in more competitive cars where he didn't end up in the top three. But of Portugal 89, he said so much work went went into it. It was such a personal thing for all of us. We'd all had our setbacks and here we are, a bunch of guys that were good friends. It was an unbelievably tough year with pre-qualifying and the team was on the brink with no finances. Emotions were high all the time, so it was definitely satisfying. Sam, this was one of two times a driver would go from pre-qualifying to finishing on the podium and it was the first time it happened. How impressive was this whole weekend from Johansson and Onyx? Oh, incredibly impressive. I mean, what a journey that is from 8am on a Friday morning until getting onto the podium or just getting on the podium in Stefan's <laughs> um, instance. Um, you know, it was, in my mind, one of Johansson's best F1 drives. He, he actually should have been on the third row of the grid. He missed a gear in his uh, on his final quick lap in qualifying. I reckon that he lost at least a second, which would have put him um, sort of fifth, sixth on the grid. So he started 12th, did a remarkable non-stop run, looking after his good years like they were sort of prize jewels or something. And, and, and by the end, they, they seemed to be made of stone or something. So, you know, a great weekend, a great drive from him. For, for, for an Onyx to outfox and outrace Williams, ben, Benetton's, Brabham's, it was just a, a brilliant giant killing out, wasn't it? I mean, it, it was a tantalising glimpse of what, what might have been achieved had that team been run properly from, from the commercial ownership side of things. So again, you know, just reiterated earlier, what what a shame. And uh, yeah, great job by Stefan. And um, I, I'm I'm still waiting for my Monitron dividends. I don't know about you, VDB. Did you, uh, did you ever get yours? No, but I was just going to add, um, had he not had a little problem in pre-qualifying and Leto had made it through, which he had the pace to do, he, he almost certainly would have finished in the points as well, that he was that quick on what would have been his debut. So it could have been an even more impressive uh, weekend for Onyx. But no, I live in hope of my Moneytron uh, payout uh, coming through at some point in time. Well, that seems like the perfect place to end it for Portugal 89 and uh, lots of mentions for Moneytron as well. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll build them for the promotion and I'm sure they'll pay very quickly. Plenty of the stories from this weekend did roll into the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez just seven days later. So we'll pick all of that up in a future series, I'm sure. Thanks to Andy and Sam for joining us for the long trek all the way back to the first year of our glorious V10 era next time we're taking our first dip into one of our most requested topics from our audience and that's alan prost's f1 team prost grand prix and i say first dip because this story will get more than one episode but we're going to kick things off by revisiting the team's first season in 1997 when prost took over ligier on the eve of the campaign and had a very promising first year that it turned out was not a sign of things to come